Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about products, talking about management, talking about product management. We're talking to Patrick Rollin from Laidback Games. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, excited that you're here. I'm glad to talk to you. This is something, you know, we're hitting a different angle. You know, this is the Board Game Design Lab, and a lot of people think, well, like, what are you, what are you talking about? This sounds like more of a business podcast with product management, and, and <laughs> that would be fair. That's a true thing. But you have, you have some really interesting ideas on how product management also translates into game design. And considering the world that we live in now, especially with Kickstarter and self-publishing being such a common, you know, normal thing, I feel like product management is something that more people need to be aware of, you know, the ins and outs, the pitfalls, you know, what to do, what not to do. So I'm, I'm very interested to talk to you about these things. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Boy, I got into games. Well, let me start with games. I got into games in college. I think Bang was the game that like all of my college friends played. And then, you know, we then we got into different types of area control games, Carcassonne, uh, Settlers, Catan, all, all that stuff. Um, but game design came later. Uh, I want to say maybe just two, three years ago. And it was just one of those things where you're like, hey, I can do that. And I just started listening to podcasts like yours, um, reading resources, and then just starting to create things. And I'm, I've always had at least one creative hobby. And now board game design has sort of taken over. I used to like paint a lot of miniatures, <laughs> but now I do, I spend a lot more time uh, making board games. It's such a fun, creative activity for me. I really like it. Yeah, very cool. And so, all right, so product management, as we get into this, first of all, tell me your background and why why we should even listen to you as a product management person. Yeah, so um, if you're in the IT space, you probably know what product management is. If you're not, product management, and, that, and that's what was one of my previous roles, I was the product manager for e-commerce software. So if you want to sell something online, I was basically the guy who decided all of the features that went into that software. So uh, <laughs> software is this like big complicated, crazy thing. I was on a team of 50 people and I was the guy who said what features went in, what features didn't, which features we're going to put in eventually, but you know, six months from now, not right now. And I was constantly just, I was under barrage of ideas. People like, let's integrate with the software with this company. Let's add this feature over here. Let's uh, add these, these special tax rates so that people in New Zealand can use it. There's just an unlimited amount of ideas, especially for software. Um, that, and you just have to learn how to say no very, very quickly. You have to have a vision for your product. You have to have a direction. You have to have an intention for your product. Uh, and if you don't, you will just be inundated with ideas and you will sort of do a little bit of everything and it'll just be a pretty boring product, pretty boring software product. And I just, as soon as I got into game design, I realized, you know, you go into one playtest session and you hear 40 ideas about the game that you just played with them. And probably you're going to have to throw out like 30 of them, maybe keep 10 or maybe throw out 35, 38, 39 and just keep one. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time in the last couple of years saying no in, in software teams. And that's I think it's really, really helped me uh, parse feedback that people give me uh, because I, I, I know I have an idea for what I want and I just keep moving towards that goal. And just, you just have to ignore everything else or 
maybe you keep it in the back of your mind, but it goes into like, you know, in software world, we call it the ice box, you know, so it, it goes into your ice box of like, here's literally a thousand other ideas that this game could be, but they're kind of off to the side and they're logged, but you're not going to do anything with them until they become a, a bigger issue or, 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 or until you want to change the vision of your, your product or game. Yeah. So basically you, you take in a ton of data, a ton of information and then mm -hmm. decipher it and then do something with it, right? Whether it's turning mm -hmm. it into a real thing and saying, okay, we're going to take this data and turn it into a feature and put it in here. Or yeah. you're just taking the data and saying, okay, no, that's not what we're going to do. And you're, you're not turning yeah. it into reality, I guess. And so like, what would you say is a really good working definition of what product management is? So you kind of gave me the business side and what your role was and what you did, but like, what's the, just a, give me a good definition. I'm just going to go with like a one, super simple one sentence definition. Yeah. You are, you, you lead the vision of the product. You lead the direction of the product. The product manager is the person who decides what the product is and how you get there. Um, and then, as I said, you get a lot of feedback. One of the things I, I forgot to mention is like, you have to use a lot of tools and data and analysis to sort of verify all the things that people, so people say, Hey, we need to, we need to add this new tax system so we can sell to customers in New Zealand. You look at the data, like how many people from New Zealand, how many people are in New Zealand, what percent of them want to use their software. You, you kind of hear all this input and then you use all the tools, metrics and soft, um, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for here? Not analytical data, but like people's testimonials. Like user feedback kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, but like user, yeah, like, uh, or anecdotal information, but you have to use all that data, combine it together, and then choose the best way forward to, to meet your goals. Yeah, gotcha. And so why would you say is this important, especially when we're talking about board games? So I, I think it's important for a lot of reasons. Um, but the, the first one is when you go to, um, when you go and play test your game, you're going to get feedback from people who aren't, in your demographic who or who aren't in your audience. Uh, and so they're going to give you very different feedback than if they are in your audience. I have a very, the game I, I've been making for the last uh, year or so is very casual and it's made to be played in 10 minutes. You know, it's, it's on the level of code names. So every time I play at a, I go to a protospiel, I go to an unpub or something like that. People give me like, Oh, I want to add this. I want to add an economic system. I want to add 10 rounds instead of one round. And I, and I listen to all that feedback and I hear it, but I know I want to have a light casual game that that's very fast. And you could, in, in my case, I just want to play as many rounds as you, as you can choose to play as many rounds as you want, rather than saying you have to play the 10 rounds and you, you win whoever wins the most 10 rounds wins. Um, so you just have to understand who's giving you feedback and frame everything that they give you through that lens. Um, there's a great uh, playtest group about 45 minutes North of me and they, they, they do really cool stuff. They like, they videotape their playtests. But virtually everyone in that playtest group is like they they love the three hour games and I you know when you're making a ten minute game or a twenty minute game you just have to you just have to take everything they give you with a grain or a salt shaker of salt. Um, so I think that's the, the the biggest thing. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people are already doing this stuff. They just didn't realize yeah. you know you could call it product management. I, you know they, they just yeah. think this is just part of the normal thing. Well, like, it is and it is right, but it's there, there's a little bit more to it. And I feel like if you can take this more business or more professional approach to things, you can actually speed up your processes. Now I'm excited to kind of get uh, a little bit deeper into maybe some ways mm -hmm. to do that, some ways you found uh, that work. But let's get into a little bit uh, deeper some things you've already mentioned. So you, you mentioned features, right, being part mm -hmm. of what uh, you had to figure out with software and, and what to yeah. add in and what to take out. How does that translate into the board game space and you already mentioned some making sure you know if you have a casual game then, then don't let you know heavy gamers talk you into yeah. adding all these extra systems and stuff like that to make it more than casual uh, but like what else have you have you seen as far as like making yeah. sure you're adding the right features so to speak which may be a mechanism yep. maybe a theme and not adding others tell me more oh okay awesome so in the software world the one of the rules of thumb that we use is if 80 or 90 percent of your users will use a feature you add it in 
Now, if only 10% of the users are gonna use this feature, maybe you add it, but you have to like hide it in the advanced menu or you don't add it at all. But if you if 80 to 90% of your users are gonna use this feature, then add it, absolutely add it, make sure it works, make sure it's very viewable and, uh, and, and functional. But if let's say only 50% of your users are gonna add it, then it has to be hidden away, minimized or, or put somewhere else. I think the same thing can absolutely be said about board games. So yeah, lots of people talk about, uh, or I was just at a playtest, uh, a different playtest group last night, and there was a very cool hidden role game. And there's a very, there's like, I think there was like five different currencies in this game, and you're trying to get different currencies and you know, play cards, let you do all sorts of things. But let's say one currency is only used for ten percent of the cards, then it's like extra. It's extra. Um, it takes extra brain power to process. What is this currency? How much do I need? When do I need it? How do I get it? How valuable is it? And you might just want to like you know get rid of that currency if it's only used for ten percent of the game, and instead just use a different currency. So I, if basically if something isn't being used by eighty percent of the users, you probably can just get rid of it. Um, so maybe in a game where you have multiple paths to victory, if there's, uh, you know, one path is like 33% of people take this path where they build buildings, let's say 30% of people take this path where they build the largest army and 30% of people take this path where they get the most resources. And then 10% do this other thing where it's drawing all the cards, maybe just get rid of that last path. Like you want, when you add something to a game, you want the vast majority of the people who play that game to use it. Um, at least that, that's, that's what I learned in product management. And that's so far what's worked really well for me in games as well. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and this gets back to even like when you're writing rules and you have all these edge mm -hmm. cases, how can you mm -hmm. streamline your game? So there aren't any of those edge cases or there's as few as possible. I know in my, my own design process, uh, anytime I have something, I have an action or like you're saying a path to victory or, you know, a different upgrade or something tech tree kind of thing. And yep. I go through a play test and it doesn't get used or it barely yep. gets used. Then for the next play test, it's on the chopping block, right? And if it goes yep. to get another play test and nobody really uses it or it doesn't use it at all, it's gone. It's out of the game. Yep. Like period. It's done because there either I have made a mistake in my incentives. Like I am not incentivizing yep. players to do something. And so I need to totally rework this, the system or the mechanism, or it's just not fun. It's just not enjoyable. Yep. It doesn't fit the theme or something like that. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good thing for designers just to be aware of. If Even if it's something you love, right? It might be a mechanism yes. or a part of the game. You really, you just enjoy, you're excited about it but nobody cares and doesn't use it and they don't use it. And so like, get rid of it. Yeah. It, so one very, very simple way of using this, this rule of thumb is if someone holds onto a card for the entire game and they don't play it like that is, and I've had that in my game yeah. where for whatever reason, I didn't make the card good enough or it just wasn't fun or people didn't understand what it did. If people never use a card or let's say they hold onto it for, it's a 30 turn game. They hold onto it for like 25 and they finally use it near the end of the game where they ignore the cards or something like that. Like obviously there's a problem. So make sure that, or, and also the opposite's true in cards, right? Like if someone, uh, there was a card in my game that was like draw two play, you can draw two cards and then you can play an additional card. It was basically a free action that, and people always played it. There was literally no case where someone didn't play that card because it was just, you get more options and you can still take another action after this. In that case, that card was too good. And because I realized everyone played it the first turn they drew it, we have to tone that down. So now it's draw two cards. You may play one of the two cards you just drew. So that limits your options. I. I think it's important to see what people are, you just have to pay attention to what people are using and what people aren't. Um, I, I actually didn't have a tying mechanism I gained for a long time because people didn't, people didn't look at that part of the rule book. They didn't, they didn't get that far down. And if people don't use it, then you don't need to add it. Um, I finally added a tying mechanism, probably right around play test, like 80 when finally people starting to ask about it, but I didn't bother adding it until people started asking for it. Yeah. And another thing is to not blame your players, right? Because they're not yes. taking that extra path that you really love and you, you're, you're in love with, but 
they don't care. It's not their fault. That, that's your fault as the as the game designer. I remember when I was early on working on the mm-hmm. my football game, the dynasty building game. Mm-hmm. There were there's a mechanism in there, so it's it's kind of a, it has a set collection aspect to where if you get players of a similar type. Uh, you know, it's kind of like building this team together. You get all sorts of victory points at the end of the game. But one thing I noticed in a couple of play tests that early on is that during the game, people just did not care about the, the collecting sets or anything like that. And then they would get to the end of the game and they would mm-hmm. get super annoyed because like some people would get all these victory points for having sets and some people wouldn't They'd be like, well, what, what like, what, then they'd get very annoyed, right? And because and mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with like in the game, it's kind of a victory point <laughs> thing at the end. And I was like, okay, how do I incentivize this? And so mm-hmm. I added this little extra system to where when you get certain numbers of these uh, types of players and sets, you get these bonus action cards that are super mm-hmm. powerful. Like they do extra, they give you all sorts of extra dice and you get to do re-rolls and you, like some really powerful game-changing kind of things. So it incentivizes players to do it in the game and not mm-hmm. just try to think about it at the end. And so I think that's, a, that's another thing for designers just to be aware of is like how can you alter your game a little bit to incentivize maybe some of these things that players aren't doing and maybe that could change things as well absolutely i love that all right so let's talk about pricing right this is another thing you talked about with with software and, and figuring out okay this is how much it's going to cost this is what's going to go in so how does that translate into uh, game design hmm. So, so let me just say, I, uh, if you've ever built a website, you've probably heard of a technology called WordPress. I built a, pro- a software product in the WordPress space. Now, the Word- WordPress is a super cool tool, but the people like WordPress started out as an 100% free platform. And now there's a couple of paid, op- there's several paid options you can use, but it started out entirely free. So everyone who started out in WordPress 10 years ago kind of expects everything to be free. And because it's software and it doesn't cost you, you know, it's called zero mar- uh, marginal cost. There's a marginal cost of zero per unit sold. Like it doesn't cost you anything extra to sell extra units. Um, people kind of expect it for free, right? It's like, hey, I spent 40 hours updating this this piece of software and I'm releasing it to everyone. Um, it fixes all these bugs. It adds all these features. It does all this stuff. And people are like, well, I paid $2 for this 10 years ago. Where's my free update? <laughs> And, um, and that's, it's really, and people kind of have these weird expectations around price. And because one other company in your space does do that, they have lifetime updates for forever, even though you paid $1 13 years ago, that doesn't mean you have to do that. So the company I worked for, we doubled our prices. We got rid of lifetime licenses. We did a lot of, of stuff with pricing because we needed to make ends meet. Uh, there's a, I, oh my gosh, I sometimes see Kickstarters where it's like, for $8, you get this tiny, you, or you get, you get a, you know, a, a small game, let's say the size of the mind, you get a small game and it's shipped for free anywhere in the world. And it's going to come with all these extras. I'm like, how do you make any money? Um, I, I have, I, I think I learned through product management that there will always be people complaining about your price. All there will, I don't think it'll ever be a day where, some, where zero people complain about how expensive your product is. And you just have to like, let go a certain, a certain number of people or not let go, but just say, hey, if, if it's too expensive, you don't need to buy it. But this is the price that I need to set this product at to make money, to make a living. Um, one of the things I learned about software is if uh, the software developer doesn't make enough money, guess what? He stops updating the product. In the board game world, it's not quite as bad like because the, the board game obviously still works. But guess what? If you don't make enough money, there's no expansions. There's no second editions. There's no FAQs. There's no all extra. There's no promos and at, at conventions. There's none of that. So... I think I learned you have to, companies have to, number one, set high enough prices to, to make a living. And then number two, people have to be willing to pay. And, and just one more point on pricing. I, I talked to a couple of people about like print and plays. Uh, well, I'm, I have my Kickstarter in a couple, uh, it's going to, I guess it's coming out as we're. Yeah, it's on Kickstarter <laughs> right now. If you're listening yeah, to yeah. this, it's on Thank Kickstarter. You. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
and I was talking to some people and some people like, you can only ch uh, charge a dollar for print and play. And I'm like, I don't, number one, I don't think that's, that's true. But number two, if I have a $5 print and play, even if I lose four out of five customers, I still make the same amount of money because it's five times as expensive. Right. So you can let go of four fifths of your audience if you raise the prices enough. That's that's a that's not a great example, but like just don't be afraid to let a couple of the the people who are too uh, I don't use the frugal. There we go. There's there's a slightly nicer word. If people are too frugal, don't be afraid to let them go. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, so let's go into what like what are some of the other things like maybe the unsaid, the unspoken kind of things that also go along with these things with pricing? No, no, just in general. So one thing I, I've recently, actually one thing I've been thinking about is I've heard, uh, so I've been working on my game for a year. The first six months, people are like, hey, the cards work great, love all this stuff, great, great, fun. And I'm making tweaks. But one of the things that people did uh, sort of complain about is I hear, hey, I don't really like how these tokens feel. Because um, they were like, I, I made it, it was an 18 card micro game to start. And they were like, car, like literally the the width of a, of a of a card. So they're very thin tokens that I had in the game. And people said I didn't like that. And and uh, I didn't really know what to do with that feedback because I wanted my game to be small, like about the size of a button shy game. Like I wanted it to be really, really small. One of the things I didn't realize is I just never asked people like, hey, if I made this slightly bigger and I added all these extras, like people get little player boards instead of nothing. People get player boards, people get nicer wooden tokens, people get uh, a few extra bonus cards. Would you be willing to pay an extra three or $4 for that? Um, and no one no one mentioned that. In six months of me playtesting this game, no one said, hey, Patrick, it would be, they know, no one connected the dots. They said, hey, I don't like these tokens, but no one said, Patrick, these tokens are so, un I don't like these tokens so much that I'm willing to pay an extra three to $4 to have, you know, a, a small box, little little tokens, little player boards, uh, and all that stuff. I kind of had to figure that out. And that is that is product management. You hear a complaint, but you never hear the, the solution in this case is increase your price by three to $4, add a box, add player mats, add tokens but no one ever said it in those words. You kind of had to put it together. Um, and I think you have to play your game, at least for me, I have to play it. I have to play my game a lot, probably, I don't know, 40, 50 times in those first six months to finally understand that this is that big of a problem that I have to upgrade the size of my box and make something, make something uh, better. Yeah. And I think sometimes you run into like the, the Henry Ford situation. I can't remember exactly the, the quote, but you know, he said, you know, if I asked the consumers what they want, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, you know, Absolutely. and that, and, and he had to come up with all these ideas and go, okay, we're going to, we're going to make cars and, and the, um, assembly line and all these things like he had to be the innovator. And I feel like a lot of times as a game designer, you have to hear complaints because, you know, the complaint yes. for consumers there was we want to get places faster. And so, yes. and if you'd asked them, they said, you know, I guess a faster horse, because <laughs> a lot of times yep. people are really good at telling you like what they don't like, but are usually pretty bad about coming up with solutions to it. And that's definitely been my case with uh, my experience with playtesting, right? People are really good at going, man, this just doesn't feel good. This isn't fun. I'm not enjoying totally. this. But, you know, they're not super good at telling me, hey, you need to change this and tweak that number and fix this over here and add another card. They're not so good at that part. And, that, and that's really our, our totally. job as designers, right? That's, that's who yes. we are. So, so one thing I just want to share, one thing that's really hard in the software world that is really easy in the board game world is in the software world, we have to make everything backwards compatible. Everyone has to like upgrade to the new version. If you have a feature, you have to give people like a certain amount of time. If you remove a feature, you have to give people like six months or a year to find like a replacement software that handles that feature and integrates with your product or it, it's really really hard to get rid of stuff what's amazing about making a board game is literally the next time i bring out my game the, these new playtesters don't care what the last version was they don't they don't have any expectations they don't have any um they, they don't have any needs from the, the previous game so feel free to like rip your game apart 
bring like literally double the size of your game add twice as many cards add player boards add this and if it doesn't work you can rip it up you can go back like you cannot do that in the software world so i had to be a lot more deliberate in the software world and it's really nice i'm feeling i feel very free in the board game world it takes a lot of effort right to you know add new cards and add a board but you can just that's what i did i no one said Patrick, please, please add player boards. I just made them and said, huh, I wonder if people will like this. Mm. And I was surprised when people did. And after you hear feedback, you figure out why. But I, it was honestly an experiment. And I'm really happy that that it's so easy to experiment in the board game world. Yeah, that's another good point. It's, it's not like people have to get a new table every time new games come out. Whereas as with a computer, like you very well <laughs> might have to get a new computer if it's not, you know, up to the ability of the yes. new graphics or whatever it is. And so that's a very, it's a very uh, good point. And it's actually something Matt Leacock talked about, and he comes from hmm. software world as well. But he talked about how when he's making changes, he doesn't make incremental changes. Like he's not going to change a card by one little point. He'll change it by 10 points. He'll, he'll double the yeah. amount or he'll half the amount. And because that gives yeah. you a better understanding of, is this really the problem? Is this really going to help fix something? And and then you can get some more data, more information, and then you can tweak it, you know, maybe incrementally a little bit. But when he's really trying to figure something out, like what's wrong, let's double stuff, let's half stuff, let's let's make big yep. changes and see what happens. I and I would I would remove like remove a mechanism and see if people like the game. Like literally just yeah. remove it and see what happens. And if it's the game still works, great, throw it out and maybe you can add it back in later for an expansion, whatever. Um there's 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 so much room for experimentation and I I guess I see a lot of game designers in my local scene here that will like, they just tweak the cards or like they are 100% committed to it being a card game. And even though everyone says a board would be a good idea, they never, they don't even test it. So I, man, just test everything. Yeah. I think that's the case with a lot of Euro games where you have to feed your people. And I know it makes sense thematically, but man, like this is like this is not fun. This is not enjoyable. And you kind of sit back and you go, like, did this stay in there just because it's thematic? Because like mm -hmm. it adds extra steps, it adds extra rules, it makes your rule book one or two pages longer. Like, you know, it's mm -hmm. not quite as streamlined as maybe it could have been. Mm -hmm. Or more, maybe it does balance the game. Maybe it does, you know, reset the resources, sure. maybe it does keep people from getting out ahead too far. I don't know, maybe it does play a role in there. But I guess as a designer, you want to make sure everything matters, everything counts, and you're not just doing things for the sake of it. And like you said, take it out and see if it still works. And if it does, cool. You just made your <laughs> just made your life easier. Absolutely. All right, let's get into some expectations. Now, this is something uh, you constantly have to deal with with software of saying, hey, you know, buy this product because it's going to make your life easier, it's going to make your life better, and then you have to deliver on that. And so, like, how does that also play a role in the board game space? So I just, I had one, um, so in the board game world, we have blind play tests. In the software world, we have user tests. Very similar. You like watch people use your product and you like, just like shake your head in frustration at how you thought something was so easy and it, it <laughs> turns out to be really hard. Um, and it's, by the way, that's always your fault. Yeah, it's not the user's fault. Yep. But um, I saw one user test. Um, I happened to be standing next to the guy. It happened to be a friend of mine. And one of the things I didn't, I never realized before was he was trying to install the software and he had FTP problems. He couldn't like load files on his website. He, then he tried to like load it through a different way to like remember his password. He couldn't remember his password. Then he like started uploading the file, but didn't wait for it to finish and then tried to activate it. And it kind of half turned on, half turned off because guess what? Only half the program was uploaded. And I just never considered that someone would be angry when they started playing my game. Or, or sorry, sorry, started using my software. Yeah. And I've now started thinking about that with with my games. Like what happens if someone is angry, upset, sad, um, frustrated, or they're like, wow, we literally have 30 seconds to finish this game before we have to start the next game. Um, I think we kind of sometimes go into these playtesting environments where everything is perfect and people are people are ready for like rough edges. And in real life, people are probably having bad days, not great days, sad, angry, all this stuff before they even play your game. 
Um, so I've just, I've, I've started, <laughs> I've started watching that and noticing that before, but when I, when I do a play test, like what happens if someone is so tired, they can't read my rules. Um, and a good example is I had one, one card in my game where it's like, you can do one of these two options. Option one is block a card. Option two is like draw a card or something. I noticed several people just never bothered to read the second option. They're just like, yeah, I don't care. I'll just, I'll just, I'm like, but the second option is better for you. He's like, yeah, I didn't read it. Okay. Like he was just, it was too much effort to read one more line of text. And I sort of never considered that before. Um, so I think you just have to think about where people are before they use your product. Uh, that was, that was, that was eye opening to me when I found that in the software space of literally someone was cursing before he started using my product. Yeah, it's a great point. And this is something I ran into with my, my space game. Uh, I got some really good feedback from somebody about my rule book and they were saying, Hey, can you add more pictures in here? I want to know what these things look mm -hmm. like. And my comment was, well, well, I assume you have the game there with you. Right. And so like, like, wouldn't you just be able to look at the components there next to you, like with the rule book? And he came back and he sent me an email back and he said, well, no, I, I like to read rule books like in bed before I go to sleep. And then like, uh -huh. if I'm going to play the game the next day, I want to, I just have the rule book. And so I don't have all the components there with me. And so I like to have pictures so I kind of have an idea of what it looks like. I, oh, I, I, I never thought about that. I never thought that people would do that because I don't do that. And I think that's something yeah. you have to do is get in, you know, just think from other people's uh, angles, you know, try to get in their shoes because, there's a billion different ways to do things because there's billions of different people that all respond differently and, and you know, try new things and that maybe you've yep. never thought of. And that's another reason why it's so important to test over and over and over and over again, because yep. you get all these different uh, angles and perspectives. Yeah. And, and like the rule, so I, you know, I wrote the first rule book as all, it was just uh, a word doc or a Google doc of just, just text. And then slowly I've started adding graphics for things just because it made every graphics explain. So much. like the setup for my game is super easy. It's like, Two, two cards and you put all the resources of one person's card. That's it. Two cards, put all the resources of one person's card. And it is still some, you still see people go, oh, like they'll point at the rule book and like, oh, that's how it is. Like they just, then they can skip reading setup because there's the little diagram. So I've, yeah. I try to add diagrams for everything. Yeah, absolutely. And people like me who maybe have dyslexia or maybe just hate reading, mm -hmm. right? I mm -hmm. like, I hate yeah. rule books. I, I hate reading them. It's just not my favorite thing at all. And, but because of where I am, because of my, I am the board game guy around here. You know, <laughs> I'm just that guy. Oh, you have that podcast. Oh, you wrote the, you know, so I just, and so now I'm apparently the guy that has to teach games just because people <laughs> assume that, you know, and I hate it. And so, but anytime I have a game, a, a rule book that just has graphics and pictures and arrows and everything's pointed out and color coded and all this stuff, it's like, oh, thank you. Whoever designed this, whoever created this rule book, thank you. You have made my life easier. And so it's just, it's just a very, very uh, important thing. And going back to that, I wrote, just wrote a quick note about toothpaste. But when you're talking about blaming, you can't blame the user. I remember seeing this like little, it's like a YouTube video, like a five minute thing. Mm -hmm. And it was, mm -hmm. a, I think it's some kind of like product manager or, or mm -hmm. engineer or something for like Crest or Colgate, one of those toothpaste companies. And they talk, he was talking about how frustrated he was because they, he had designed this like brand new tube of toothpaste and it was supposed to be super ergonomical. And like, he had all these, you know, buzzwords he's thrown out in there about the new design. It was going to revolutionize toothpaste and all that stuff. But what, the way the top popped off, you just pulled it. You just popped it off. You just popped it with your thumb and it came off. And he said during the user testing, people would take the toothpaste and they would just spin it trying to un untwist it, unscrew the, ta uh, <laughs> yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah. And they would just do it over and over and over again. And then they would look at the person, you know, that was watching and go, Hey, it's broken. <laughs> And they, they wouldn't like mm -hmm. think, oh, I maybe just pop it. No, they just spin it over and over and over again. And nothing would, you know, nothing would happen. Nothing would change. And the engineer talked about how annoyed and frustrated he was. And he ended up having to just go back to the normal unscrew the top, you know, basic way of opening toothpaste. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's just, you have to test it and you have to figure that out. And so people, yeah, there's a, um, 
there's a lot of expectations people have about games. Uh, and just if people ex assume that you twist open the toothpaste or people assume you draw from the top of the deck, don't make people like draw from the bottom, right? Unless there has to be like a really good reason yeah. to go uh, to go against conventions. Um, Gabe, have you ever seen, um, this is a real life example. Have you ever seen people open a can opener, use it sideways? Have you seen those? Oh, I don't know. So, th so there are, so you can now buy sideways can openers, but what's <laughs> fascinating is actual can openers can be used sideways, but they just don't feel right in your hands. Mm -hmm. And so people had to re redesign the can opener just so that it feels, you kind of have to hold it from the underside as opposed mm -hmm. to holding it from the top. But that was like a product to sit, like can openers can actually open a can sideways and like rip off the entire top. But because it doesn't feel right going on, people never bothered using it that way. And then they had to redesign can open. Now you can buy side opening can openers, even though all can openers are side opening. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. And this actually reminds me of like when a game has red resources, but then also a red player. Right. And it, yes. it gets a little confusing. It's like, well, well, hold on. What does, does the red player get these things? Like when you're first figuring out the game, especially it's like, I don't understand. Or the rule book can be a little bit, you know, not so clear about things. And so like making sure colors are differentiated or shapes. And that's something that I was talking to somebody recently about, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that oh, it was a graphic design, uh, James Van Van Niekerk uh, about like making sure shapes line up with other shapes. Shape. So if you have something on your board that's triangular and, and you have tokens that are triangular, people are going to assume that those things connect, that those things go together. And so make sure you're not confused your players and you can also make the game more intuitive by making sure the triangular uh, shapes do go together and the reds do go together and things like that and again it's just about the expectation people have going in yeah actually a great example uh, i did a blind play test of someone else's game um yesterday and it was this really cool like river rafting game and um all the spaces on the board you like go over the space and you like pick up a card it's like a hazard card or a wildlife card uh, then there was a special space called fishing and it looked exactly like all the other spaces. So we're like, I guess we just pick up a fishing card, but you actually have to like use a special action. But because they looked exactly the same, we just assumed every other space you go onto, the, you go onto it, you draw the card. Um, and the design, the designer was really smart. He's like, I didn't intend for it to be this way, but I think now either I have to totally redesign the icon for this, or you just have to like, you go onto the space and you, you get the, the action because it, it, they're, they're similar. You need to make sure that once people learn something, all the other rules in the game need to follow that. The, th the first thing they learned. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, unless it makes sense to go against the grain, like for instance, I think it's Eon's End, that mm -hmm. you don't shuffle. It's a deck builder, but I don't think you shuffle your discard pile after you run out of cards. I think you just flip it over. I, I think it's Eon, Eon's mm. Edge, Eon's End, something like that. And But but it makes sense. Like in the game, the way the, the mecha mechanisms work, that makes sense. And so that's super going against the grain, right? But it, if, if it's done for a reason, done for a purpose, okay, go for it. But if not, you have to really justify why, why you're doing that. Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about how you stay organized, right? How do you, we're talking a lot about data and information and, and sitting down and watching people and writing things down, all that. How do you stay organized and kind of keep all this stuff, you know, straight, you know, either in a journal or on your computer or that kind of thing, software, like, what do you do? Uh, I, I've, okay. So I've gone back and forth a little bit on this and what I found after what I found so far, and this will probably change tomorrow, but what I've found so far is I take every, I record everything in Evernote because that's the way it's searchable, it's scannable. If like, if someone said, hey, I didn't like this card, I can search for that card and that note will pop up. Like, I, I think it's really important for everything to be searchable, scannable, all that stuff. I record, uh, so I have an asymmetrical game, I should also mention. So I record which player was which role and then which role scored how many points. So I have, uh, I think right now I have 90 play tests where I recorded every single piece of data I could. I've created an Excel spreadsheet uh, and probably once every three months, it's not very often, I will at, go back through my Evernote, 
add every single game played into that spreadsheet and see who's winning. Cause it's an asymmetrical game. I want to make sure things are balanced. So I will see who's winning um, and see like off also who wins by how many points. Right. Cause if it's, you know, if people are winning by 10 points instead of one points, that's not a very close game. Um, so I, I just, I, I am the type of person that likes to record everything. One thing. So I, one thing I did do poorly and I, I'm going to fix this the next time I do this. Uh, I reached out to a bunch of reviewers for my game and I used an Excel spreadsheet, which an Excel spreadsheet is nice for like, I saw how many subscribers they have or how many blog visitors they have that mentioned somewhere. And you can kind of sort people by blog visitors or subscribers and, you know, reach out to the top people first. That was nice, but I really wish I used, uh, I'm a huge fan of Trello for, because with Trello, you can create a board, uh, you know, they're called boards yeah. and every single step is one column in the board. So the the step, this is what I wish I did is I should have said, Here's a, all the potential people for viewers. Here's all the people I've contacted. Here's all the people that confirmed. Here's uh, all the people that gave me their shipping details. Here's all the people that um, I've sent it to. Here's all the people that have like posted their reviews and like, and then it can also have a thank you column. Like you can just create like eight or nine, 10, hell a hundred steps and just have the perfect process. And I did that with a spreadsheet. It was a total mistake to do that. Cause I, 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 I think I probably missed a couple communications. Whereas with a Trello board, you can instantly see, where everyone is at. Um, so I, 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 going back through this process, I would do that with reviewers, maybe even with manufacturers, like reach out to 10 of them, 20 of them, whatever, you know, contact them, got a quote, ask them about stretch goals, whatever. And then, and then finally make your decision. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Trello. And if you've never heard of that, yep. if you're listening to this, never heard of that, that's Trello T R E L L O just search for it. Yep. It's super intuitive, super easy to use is a free version that works really well. And I actually use Trello to keep track of all my graphic design and art and just kind of make mm -hmm. sure that the graphic designer and I were on the same page. Like I, you know, he's keeping track of mm -hmm. the hours he's spent doing things and what he's working on right mm -hmm. now. And I can add little links to things say, Hey, I really want it to look like this. I really like these colors. Here's nice. what I'm going for here. And and, and we've got the, uh, the to-do list, this long to-do list. And then we've got the, in process and then the done. And so it's real easy to get on there and see exactly like what needs to be finished, you know, what the deadlines are, what he's working on right now. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of keep everything organized. So I'm a huge fan of trail. Evernote's really good as well. And also I, I love writing stuff down. So I, I have a journal. Yep. Uh, it's like a bullet journal kind of thing. And I've created my own little system that really helps me stay organized. I have a lot of stuff going on right now is what I've been uh, realizing over the last couple of weeks, uh, just with my job and my other job that starts up here in uh, a couple of months and with, with kids and with, you know, grad school, starting up and, and tons of game designs and the podcast and the book and like all these different things. And so I had to create a system and I love writing stuff. Like writing just makes me feel better. I, I enjoy that better than typing. And so I had to create a system in, in my journal that helps me keep everything organized, keep track of everything, my goals, different things I'm trying to hit, you know, making sure I'm, I'm making deadlines and things like that. And so sometimes you just have to create your own system that works for you, right? Like, like you're saying, like you have to find something that works and you have to tweak it a bit and, and just uh, go from there. And it takes a little bit of time, but in the long run, you're going to save a lot more time mm -hmm. than it's going to cost you. I would also say, yeah, it's just so nice to, for me, Trello is great for visually. Like you can yep. literally see what is on the left side that needs to move to the right side. And yep. anything that's on the right side is done and you can forget about it or get back to it later. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's super, super helpful. Yeah, definitely. And like you're saying, you can put pictures on there. It, it, you can add so many different things. It's so flexible. Yeah, it's super, super helpful. All right. So what have been some of your biggest challenges, right? We, we talked through several things, challenges and or mistakes, right? Mistakes you've made through this whole process. Tell me about those. <laughs> so I've made, I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, one thing that uh, we talked earlier about, like removing complexity. Uh, and there have been one or two cards in my game that, that I basically tweaked every single version. 
And I think when you have to tweak a card every single time you bring a new prototype out, you just need to cut the card. Like it is a, it is a great idea, but it's not worth all that. Like one card, if you have to change it every single game, it's just not worth the brain power. Um, so I, and I tried so many things. So like, I, I have a very simple game. I added permanence that obviously that's a whole level of complexity, like cards that stay in play and do so every turn. Great. I took those out. Now I made them in, or now, now I made them like companion cards. Like you can play this card for free when you play this type of card that also adds complexity. I tried that. Then I tried, you play the cards just on their own and you just have to sometimes give things up or add them in an expansion, add them down the line. Um, add them as a stretch goal, what, like get to that later. Uh, I, I wish I did that sooner. Um, because I could have saved so much brain power on a couple of these cards. I had a couple of cool ideas and I really wanted to see them in my game. And I just wish I cut them earlier. Um, cause you can always add stuff back in, right? Like, you know, with product management, you get a thousand ideas coming your way. You need to know what is like the, the most important thing to work on. So you just, if a, a particular card doesn't work, cut it. You can add it in a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. Um, and if, by the way, if people don't notice the card and they don't bring it back up probably wasn't that important to begin with. But I, I think, oh man, it's really hard, but you got to cut those things that are that are taking all your brain power. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's, let's kind of switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about product management when it comes to Kickstarter. So you're right now you're in the middle of planning and really putting all the Kickstarter thing together. Like I said, it, if you're listening to this, it's on Kickstarter right now. And so we'll kind of see how it all worked out. But like, tell me, you know, how product management goes hand in hand with Kickstarter management, you know, that, that side of things. Yeah. So I'm, so this is my first Kickstarter uh, that I've run. And the re the reason I'm sharing this is because I, one of the things I don't know is like how good is, or how, where is good enough? Does that make sense? Like I have a video that's pretty good. It's two minutes long. Do I need to shave it down to a minute 30? I like, I think, it, and I, I just don't have enough data. So I've been looking at all, all sorts of other Kickstarters. And one of the things I learned is yes, the common advice is have a, a video that's like, one to two minutes long. Mine's like two minutes, five seconds right now. But you know what? There's so many campaigns that have longer videos and it's fine. So I think with, with product management, you prioritize whatever's important. In this case, you know, for Kickstarter, it's like have a good video, have good product photography, have a good idea of what people are doing, have stretch, you know, uh, shipping, at least plan for shipping. You need to have certain fundamentals. And then from there, like I'm doing really silly stuff right now. I'm like, what color should the quotes be on the Kickstarter page? But I'm only doing that now because I've done all the big, heavy, most important stuff earlier. And I'm still tweaking those, those big, those big, really important pieces. But, you know, um, as we're recording this before the Kickstarter campaign, I have so much time left to tweak these little things. And I feel, I'd say a month ago, I was still stressed because there was a lot of the big stuff to do. Now that I've gotten all that out of the way, I can, I, you know, I can have a, a weekend, uh, I can have a weekend where I don't work on my Kickstarter game, uh, which is, which is great because this is my full-time job. This is just a part-time thing that I'm doing for fun. So it's nice to have my weekends back. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like a lot of this stuff comes down to the Pareto principle, which is the whole 80, 20 rule. Mm -hmm. And you know, 20% of your effort gives you 80% of your results. And so figuring out what is that 20%? Is it the main video? Is it, or is it the color of the font? You know, probably not the color of font, more than likely. And so you figuring out what that 20% is, it's going to bring in 80% of your backers, 80% of your funding, and really focusing on that 20% side of things and making sure that's done with excellence and, and saying that that is good enough, that the rest, you know, if, if you choose black over gray, over red, over, you know, that's probably not going to matter as much as, you know, having a how to play video or having uh, two or three reviewers or things in there, you know, like that. And I feel like that, that uh, plays a, or should play a huge role in, in what you're, like where you're uh, spending your effort. Yeah. 
And I, and I'd say you should also, um, one, so with product management, you're usually leading a team and you need to know how to delegate and assume that the people on your team know what they're doing. You should absolutely do the same thing in the board game world yeah. because like, I don't need to, I, like if I give, uh, so I always write up a style guide, which is like, here's, you know, I want this to, this is a light game. So make it funny. Use these colors, not these colors. Use these types of fonts, not these types of fonts. Like I give them guidelines and, you know, after working with them for a little bit, my designer knows what's what, and they know what I want. Um, but then, then I don't have to look at the colors. I just assume if they picked a weird color, they picked it for a reason. And it, maybe it has to do with something that I haven't considered because I haven't spent eight hours designing the page, but they have. Uh, so it's really nice to like, in, I'm, when I say delegate, I don't mean give them work, review it, uh, give them and then send them back revisions and then review it, send them back revisions and then finally post it. I mean, give them work, assume they do it right and then just go with what they make. Um, that, that's a really hard thing to let go of that creative control uh, I, I found. But when you're working with other, you know, in, in, in the software world, you're always working with developers, designers and all sorts of people in between. Uh, you just have to be willing to give away some little bits of control and assume that your team knows what they're doing. So I, for anyone out there who's going to make a Kickstarter, please have a team, even if it's just friends who can help you like moderate, just have a team and help, you know, they can help you moderate comments or something. So that way you can spend brain power in, in other places. Yeah, for sure. I'm a huge fan of delegation. Any, I, my, my rule of thumb is anything that I'm not good at or that I don't enjoy doing, how can I find somebody else to do it? Right. Whether yes. it's making videos or, you know, graphic design, any of that kind of stuff that either I'm just, I'm just no good. I suck at it. Or it's just, I don't want to do it because it's, it's not fun. It's, yep. you know, I'd rather do something else. Man, how can I find somebody? Where can I find them? How much can I pay them? <laughs> you know, how can I raise some funds to pay this person, mm -hmm. right, to do these things? And that way I don't have to. I feel like it, it makes everything better. Absolutely. All right. So let's look at product management kind of on the last side of things, the publishing side, right? Kind of more the business side of things. What have you run into there? So, well, let me just share a mistake I made. Uh, I don't know if this relates to pro product management or just me, <laughs> but... um. One of the things that I did wrong is I, I I mean, with product management, you usually have to be really good about like uh, for software, you have to have release dates uh, for some software you release weekly or you release monthly, or you just have, Hey, in two months, we're going to have a big release with all these features. And when it's my day job, I tended to be really good at that with the board game worlds. One of the things I got lost in is I reached out to one or two manufacturers really early on in the process. I had plenty of time to chat with them, email them uh, and all that stuff. And I think I was posting in some publishing groups on Facebook and other publishers reached out to me and I'm like, well, I should just talk to them. And then I sort of dragged my feet on picking the right publisher for months because publishers said, hey, Patrick, I heard you, you, you had a question about publishing this, you know, tell us about your game, we'll give you a quote. And I basically, I, what I, again, it comes back to saying no, I should have said, no, I already have my publisher. But instead I said, sure, what, what harm does it do to get another quote? And I could have spent a lot more time just saying, hey, I'm sure you're really great, but I've already found someone uh, and I can't, you know, I can't set my schedule back any further by re-interviewing another five manufacturers. Um, I I think that was something I did wrong this time. And next time, well, next time I, I now have a manufacturer that I'm, I like working with, at least so far. Um, so that'll probably be easier. But also just set, I think with certain things, you can, it's easy to like, delay and and let these delays stall your whole project. I'm lucky that I was moving far enough, moving fast enough that even though I, I was, I think I was a month and a half behind my, my magical planned perfect schedule, but I still had enough bandwidth that I caught back up to where I needed to be. So I, I fixed it, but 
I mean, set deadlines and stick to them. And even if you only have quotes from five manufacturers and other five reach out to you, you're probably fine with the first five. Like there's not going to be, there's 80, 20, right? You're not going to, you're not going to find one magical manufacturer who's like a 10th the cost. Yeah. That's another really good point. Well, man, Patrick, I really appreciate all the, the wisdom and insight and advice and all these different things. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or advice? Like what would you tell somebody who's working on a game or really kind of just thinking through this whole product management thing right now? Yeah. Learn how to say no All is like one of the, that's like a life skill. Uh, number two, we didn't talk about this is just ask for what you want. I'm always surprised by when sometimes like, Hey, I I've been thinking about this. Would you mind helping me, uh, you know, make some new cards and, and sometimes like at a play testing event, And I would assume people don't want to help me make cards. And they're like, sure. I'd love to help you make these cards. How about this? And like, you just never know what people are willing to do until you ask them. So say no, ask people questions. Uh, and I think those, those two are pretty good. Awesome. Well, tell me about that game on Kickstarter right now. Yeah, I've been working on Fry Thief for a year. It is a game about poor life choices, like when you don't order, uh, when you go to a restaurant and you don't order fries and the person across from you does, and you just have to steal a couple to, you know, make up for it. Um, so it's a super light, fun game. You know, like the wooden road pieces from Catan, I use those as fries. So those are like little fries. You steal them back and forth. And I love simple games. And I was, I was super inspired by Love Letter. I love Draw One, Play One. It's like a it's a mechanic that I can get my mom, dad, and my, I got my grandpa to play my game. Um, like they understand draw one, play one, but I made it asymmetrical. So the fry, like each card is double-sided and the, the fry player can do these cards and the salad player can do these cards or these abilities. And then there's some cards that everyone can use. So it's draw one, play one, but there's a, a nice twist on it where the cards let you do different things depending on who's playing what role. Uh, I've, I, I love it. It's fun. It's silly. It, it's probably about 10 minutes. And I'm going to say one minute setup time. You can time me on that. Yeah. And what's the player count? It is. Oh, great question. It is designed specifically for two. I have had so many requests to make it three and four. Uh, and I, do you know how like lots of games are like, this game plays one to 200 people. <laughs> um, I'm exaggerating slightly, but lots of games say that. This game, I always design it for like, this is designed specifically for two. I actually have some optional three to four player rules, but I don't even put that on the side of the box because it is designed for two. And those optional three to four player rules are, they're really fun. I played with them last night, but that's not what I made the game for. So it is a two player game, asymmetrical, takes about 10 minutes. Yeah, for sure. This is something Jason Tagmar talked about, you know, with Button Shot is he, they want games that are for a specific player count and don't feel like you have to tack on extra yes. ways to play it with more players or less players. Like if the game is for two players, then the game is for two players. And we live in an age now where if somebody wants to play a three player game or a five player game or an eight player mm -hmm. game, there are options. So don't feel like yes. you have to make your game playable up to six players if it's not really a six player game. And this is something that Ted Osbach talked about a while back on the show is how, okay, you could you could make a game that's four players four four players two to four, and then figure out a way for that fifth player thing to work, and then throw that mm -hmm. in the box. You know, slap you know two to five players on there and, and feel good about it. But the problem is, more than likely, many if not most of the people who play that game for the first time are going to want to play it with the highest player count. It's game night, and everybody mm -hmm. sees the new game, and they all want to be involved. And yep. so you're going to get the highest player count. And if that is not the best place to play it then they're not going to have the best experience. And so if the game is really for four players, then it should yeah. be for four players, up to four. You know, and Because if you add that extra one in, people are probably going to play it that first time and not enjoy it, and they're not going to play it again because it wasn't fun and there's plenty of other games to play. So I think that's yeah. uh, just something to realize. So so just just to uh, bring this full circle, in the product management world, like I made e-commerce software. You know, If you want to run an online store, you can sell stuff with the software. It could technically be crowdfunding software, 
but we never marketed it that way because that's not what we do best. So always, always tell people what you do best. In this case, the game is the best at two players, which is why I made it a two-player game. Yeah, exactly. Well, awesome, man. Again, Patrick, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the game and the Kickstarter and everything else you got run, you got going on right now. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?